Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Have you wished you could have more of someone else's strengths and less of your weaknesses? Perhaps you know someone who's better at your job than you, or maybe a better parent or a better friend. What if, as good as these people are, they were the wrong standard? Teaching team member David McNeely brings us this message entitled, Compared to Whom? which covers John chapter 21, verses 15 through 23. Thank you for joining us today. I want us to sit on one thought. Uh, the, the thought is this. Uh, do you compare? Do you ever find yourself comparing uh, anything? Do you find yourself comparing you to others? Do you find yourself comparing your family to other families, your organization to other organizations, your church to other churches, your marriage to others' marriage, your career to others' careers, your gifts to others' gifts, your strengths and weaknesses to others' Strengths and weaknesses, if you do, uh, you're in good company. And I would even venture to say that it is true for all of us that we fall into this. Over 500 years ago, a guy named John Lydgate said this. He said, comparison is odious. I don't even know what that is, but it sounds bad. (laughs) Mark Twain said, it is the death of joy. Chuck Swindoll, even to this day, still calls it folly. Now, recently, I wrote a blog. I'm not a blogger. I don't know a lot about technology, uh, but I wrote a blog for the Young Families blog. Fifth time I've said that word here at the, uh, at the church. So if you got this a while back, you know where we're going. We're going to expound on that a little more. Uh, but I've been thinking about this subject for a while uh, and, and particularly uh, deeply convicting for me. But I want to let us off the hook for just a little bit, because all comparisons are not bad. Some of them, in fact, are good. It's good and it's right to compare some things. For example, I'm thankful that the police, the FBI, whomever it may be, will compare uh, uh, the fingerprint of someone to this one other and will find out who the criminal is. Comparisons have been done in medical research for years We have great advancements in science and medicine because of continuous comparisons that are done over and over and over again. It's good and it's right to compare prices on things to determine the value of what it is that you need. Could be a service, it could be a good that's provided. Um, It's good to, uh, to, uh, to compare those prices to find out what is the best stewardship of your dollars. I would even say that there are some times in which it would be appropriate to compare certain gifts and talents to others so that you can determine what's best for your organization. For example, if you are a general manager of a professional team, you need to find out, does this guy hit and throw well? Does he do it better than this particular guy uh, does? Now, um, most of the time, what I would say, though, is that comparing people is not a good thing. So think of it in broadest terms. If you're going to, def- to determine the value of things, it's probably a good thing to compare. If you're going to determine the value of people, it's probably not a good thing to compare. But we all do it, don't we? Ladies, do you compare your hair to hers? 
Do you compare, oh, look at her skin. I wish I had that skin. It's glorious. It's magnificent. (laughs) Guys, if you do that, let's talk afterwards. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, we compare careers. We compare cars. We compare our 401ks. We compare our salaries. Ladies, sometimes don't you compare marriages? You compare your gift mix to hers. If I just was able to treat my husband in that way, or guys, we would do that. If I could just be the kind of father that he is, or the list goes on and on. We compare ourselves to others frequently, and oftentimes it is more harmful than it is helpful in the process. Even experiences. We may have various experiences in life that, that we're able to go through and we say, well, you know, this one just doesn't match up to this one. I mean, that trip we took last year was fantastic. This one was okay, but it wasn't really as good as last year's. And what we end up doing is not being able to enjoy what this really had to offer because we're comparing it to this. Just yesterday, I had a wedding. It's in the chapel, and what I do typically with couples is I'll send them several different services for them to look at. They can compare other services and what works for them, what doesn't work for them. And I got to the end of the service, and I said, it is my pleasure to present to you Mr. and Mrs. Stephen and Carol Ann. The problem was it was Jason and Christina who were there in front of me. Yeah, and so I called it, fortunately, and, uh, and the crowd did what you did. <laughs> they laughed, and they said, poor sap. How about that? <laughs> Came back, and, I, you know, it's, it's okay to do that when I just wrote their names down wrong. I cut and pasted at the wrong time. But it's not okay to compare them with someone else. Mom and Dad, you compare your kids You know, if you would just work as hard as she does in school, you would probably get a lot further along. If you were just a little more laid back, if you didn't have quite as much energy, then you know what things probably would be. If you would be just like your brother, man, there are three major and distinct dangers that I find in comparisons. And what I'm doing here is I'm talking about the bad sort of comparison. I'm tossing out the good comparisons for a moment. And when we get into the the, the bad type of comparisons, there are at least three dangers that we have. Number one, comparing diminishes the creativity and variety of God. It diminishes the creativity and the variety of God. If we were to walk outside right now, we could just take a perusal down on the just perimeters campus, start over here, walk all the way around. I don't know how many different types of trees that we would see. Now, which tree is better? Well, you may have a particular favorite. You may not like the sap that comes out of this one. You may like the pine straw that comes out of this one. You may love the colors of these leaves even more so than the other one. But from God's perspective, he says, I like it all because I created it all. And when we compare unnecessarily two people, two personalities, two callings, et cetera, whatever you want to fill in there, we diminish the creativity and the variety of God. God loves variety. 
Does it make any sense that he would make you the same? Are you the exact same as your spouse? I sure hope not. Because if so, you're going to have a really boring marriage. You're never going to have any conflict. You're never going to have anything to work through. Are you just like your brother? You just like your sister? Comparisons diminish the creativity and the variety of God. Secondly, comparisons rarely foster an environment of true humility. Rarely will a comparison foster an environment of true humility. Now, here's what I mean by humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself than you really are. Humility is seeing yourself accurately as you are. Jesus said of himself, it's the only self-description that we have in the Gospels. It comes from Matthew 11, 28 and 30. He says, I am gentle and humble. Jesus knew exactly who he was. Do you know who you are? You probably will have a better idea as to who you really are when you stop comparing yourself to someone else and discover who it is that God's made you to be. Thirdly, comparisons distract us from the true ideal, which is Jesus. Comparisons oftentimes will take our eyes off of Jesus. That's where we are to set our gaze, to fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith. We're to stay upward looking. And comparisons distract us. They take us this direction or this direction, sometimes even this direction. And takes our eyes off of who the ideal is. Can I, can I say this? I want to make a case this morning that I think your desire to make yourself into someone else is actually a God-given desire. If you have a certain level of dissatisfaction with who you are, I think that's actually a God thing. And I think God placed the desire within you to try to become someone else. The problem is, is when we settle on looking out at everyone else, making that the standard as opposed to the ideal as Jesus. Because what God is doing is he is, he is on a relentless path to transform you, to conform you into the image of his son. He wants to take you from who you are. He wants to make you into looking and smelling and talking and acting and loving like Jesus. So this yearning you have deep inside of you to become somebody else, God gave it to you. Don't settle for putting it on anyone else. Pastors struggle with this as well. It's a couple of years ago when I stood, I've shared this before, but I, I stood for my examination. It's an examination that's required for all teaching elders in our denomination, and it's a, it's a tough exam. There's no way around it. And the first time I took that exam, I failed it so miserably. Um, there was very little need for us to discuss, and that we have both a written exam and an oral exam, and there was very little need for us to discuss the oral side of it because the written side was so poor. And so there I am with these men, of which I know fully they are brighter than I am. And what got unearthed in me at that point was something I never knew was in existence before. I never knew that I had this deep-seated insecurity about people who are brighter than me. 
And when I was around them, it, it was, I questioned my calling. I, I, I told Judith, I, I want to get out of ministry. I just want to go coach. And praise God for a wife who had great wisdom and discernment, who um, loved me well during that time and said, no, if God calls you to be a coach, I, I would love to be a coach's wife, but I think he's called you to be a pastor. And so you just don't know how to fully study yet. So we went that route. But what I learned then that happened a couple of years ago, I never knew that was there. I always saw myself as an arrogant, cocky little kid, which I was growing up. Not knowing that there was some deep-seated insecurity that was there. You know what I do now? I compare myself to other pastors still. I'm not proud of that. I want to have all of the pastoral sensitivity and care for others to be able to really shepherd someone's soul. I want to be able to do that like Bob Carter. I want to have all the visionary skill, the ability to look far down the road and to lead people with a laser focus like Randy Pope. I want to have a mind theologically that can just throw things off the top of my head that has a knowledge that is so sunk in it's become a part of the very fabric of who I am like Bob Cargo. I want to have this capacity to churn out work, to be a high-functioning, high-capacity individual. I want to do it like that little German man, Randy Schlichting. <laughs> I want to be able to have the fresh approach towards life, to wake up with the zeal, attack life, and love my bride like Carl Wilhelm. I want to be able to pray I want to be able to pray with great fervor and, and watch the Spirit do something that is unusual and significant. I want to have the kind of answers that I see when Brian White prays. I want to have all of those characteristics and qualities, and, and yet I still want to be able to preach like Andy Stanley and Louis Giglio and Matt Chandler and Mark Driscoll. <laughs> and what I've learned over the time is that what I really want is I want to have all of those gifts residing in me. I want to be Jesus. I don't want to follow Jesus. I want to be Jesus. And what Jesus says is this, David, chill out and follow me. So three things I would like to draw our attention to, and then I want to look into a text. Three things to draw our attention to. Um, reminders, if you will, about God's wisdom and his ways. Number one, God's calling is personal and his leading is unique. Now, I ripped this straight from Chuck Swindoll years ago, began growing in my faith. I heard him teach on this passage that I'm about to teach on. He gave this one statement that has stuck with me year after year after year. God's calling on you is personal and it is unique. He has crafted a life for you that fits within his divine wisdom and sovereignty and providence, and he did not make a mistake at all. He has not been taken by surprise. He has you on the path exactly where he wants you. He is molding you. He is conforming you to be exactly who he wants you to be, not who he wants your neighbor to be. Not even who he wants your child to be or your parent his calling is personal and his leading is unique. He will not take you down the same path that he takes someone else. 
Secondly, God's grace is sufficient for you. And I put the word only in there. I hope it doesn't confuse you. But what I mean is this. Since his calling is personal and his leading is unique, he will not give you the same grace he gives to someone else for their calling. He will give you the grace for your calling. So you may look at someone else and you may say, I don't know how they get through that. Look at that stamina, that faith, look at their ability. And and that's because God gave it to them. He did not give it to you. But his calling for you, his grace is sufficient. Thirdly, God's command is unyielding. He will not stop in his calling of you, his command for you to follow me. Not a system, not a philosophy, not a behavior improvement program, not a theory, not a religion. Follow me, says Jesus. If you have your Bibles, open with me to John chapter 21. Just a a brief background. This is the end of the book of John, and John is is giving us a, a little bit of information as to what takes place when Jesus is raised from the dead. And So if you recall, um, there was a conversation that took place with Jesus and his disciples before he went to the cross. And that conversation basically went like this. I'm going to paraphrase it. All of you are going to leave me. And Peter speaks up on behalf of the group there at the Last Supper. And he says, hey, we're with you. And in fact, if everyone else falls away, Jesus, I want you to know I am devoted. I am a passionate follower of yours. I'm committed. I will fight to my death for you. Jesus says, Peter, you have no idea how weak you are. In fact, what's going to happen is three times you're actually going to deny me. And on that third time, you're going to hear this rooster crow. And it's going to remind you of what I'm saying right now. And so it's exactly what happened. Jesus is taken off. He's treated brutally. Peter sees it from a distance. He understands that this may too be his lot in life as he is called to follow Christ. He begins to rethink. And then three times in a public place, he is asked, do you know this man? And three times he denies that the last one, he actually calls down curses upon himself. May God deal with me ever so severely if I'm lying. I don't know the man. And right then, scripture tells us, Luke 22, the rooster crows in the eyes of Jesus. Catch Peter's eyes right at that moment. Bloodied. Beaten, bruised, Jesus looks at Peter. And Peter goes away weeping. He is publicly humiliated. Jesus shows up. You know the story. Jesus is raised. He was dead on Friday, but he's raised again from that grave on Sunday. And he goes around and ministers to several people. And now he shows up on the shore when they're out in a boat. And he tells them to come and have breakfast. And so they have breakfast. And now what's about to happen is a conversation between Jesus and Peter. And what Jesus is going to do is to three times give him an opportunity to tell him he loves him. Three times he denied him. Three times he's going to be able to tell Jesus, I love you publicly. But what's going to happen after that is going to take a lifetime for Peter to learn. John 21 
Begin reading with me in verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? There's a couple of different possibilities here, at least three possibilities, rather, let me say it that way, that Jesus could be asking this question. He could be saying, Peter, Simon Peter, do you love me more than you love the disciples? It would be a valid question. It would be a valid question for us this morning, would it not? Do you love Jesus more than you love your children? Do you love Jesus more than you love your spouse? Do you love Jesus more than you love your siblings? Do you love Jesus more than you love your friends? It's a valid question, but I don't think that's really the heart of what Jesus is getting at. It's a possibility, but I don't think it's the heart. Another possibility is he's saying, Peter, do you love me more than these? Referring to the nets, referring to the boat, referring to his vocation. Another valid question for us to this day, would it not be, do you love me more than your work? Do you love me more than you love being a, a, a mom? Do you love me more and you fill in the blank with whatever other thing that's out there, with whatever possessions that we might have, with whatever accomplishments, with whatever notoriety, whatever, do you love me more than you love anything from here? It's a deep and probing question. I ask it all the time about myself. Do I really love Christ more than I love being a pastor? It's a valid question. I still don't think that gets at the heart of what he's asking, though. I think the heart of what he's asking is this. Peter, do you love me more than all of these disciples love me? Is your love for me greater than their love for me? And he's setting Peter up. Not in an evil way. Bring them to the place where Peter will understand. Jesus says, do you agape me, the highest form of love? Are you willing to lay your life down for me? Peter responds, Lord, you know that I phileo you. I have a brotherly affection for you. Agape? He had tasted the denials. He knew he was no longer capable of making that statement. He says, I I do have affection for you. And Jesus says, feed my lambs. And again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly agape me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. Jesus said, then take care of my sheep. And the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? Now, many theologians, many uh, men and women that I respect deeply, conservative theologians that I have uh, learned a great deal from over the years, would say that we should not read anything into this. These words are used interchangeably throughout the gospel. That is true. I personally am not convinced of that argument, though. I I am convinced that we should read something in here. I don't want to go too far, but I think Jesus is drawing this out so that he can get across to Peter this. Peter, you will never love me like I love you. And it's why I died. 
Peter, hearing for the third time, do you flail me? It's frustrating. I've already told you. Yes, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. He tells him, this is your lot. Follow me. Feed my sheep. Now watch this. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. The word is used on an ongoing basis. So in other words, what Jesus is saying to Peter right now is keep continuously following me. Do you know what Jesus' first words were to Peter? Follow me, and I will make you a fisher of men. you know what Jesus' last words are to Peter? Follow me. From beginning to end, throughout your entire journey with me, Peter, it's about you following me, and I'm telling you, I'm going to take you down a path that you really don't want to go down. But my grace is sufficient for you. And as long as you continue to think, well, I will muster up the strength. I'll develop it. I'll be disciplined. I will love you and I will stay attached to you. As long as you think that way, you're going to get creamed because the road you're going down is bigger and badder than you are. And so I'm telling you, follow me. My grace will be sufficient for you. Now, they had gone away on a little journey, so they'd begun to walk away over here. And then scripture tells us that Peter does something that we would have done too. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Peter and Jesus are on a journey together. They're walking this direction side by side. Peter is focused in on Christ. And then all of a sudden he turns around and he notices that another follower of Jesus is following behind Jesus. And his, his attention goes from Christ and it goes to someone else. And he says, what about him though? I mean, this life you've called me to is hard. What about him? If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. It is so beautiful in the original language. It's hard to get across in our English translation because he puts the pronouns in juxtaposed position. The you is in the singular form. So he's not talking to all the disciples. He's speaking directly to Peter. And so the way it sounds is this. What is that to you? You, me, follow. He is direct, but he is not without compassion. The road of suffering Jesus has just walked down. He is calling Peter to a road of suffering as well. My grace will be sufficient for you. I know what this life is like. And I'm telling you, I can get you through this if you will follow me. But as long as you look at someone else, you will never experience my grace. You will either elevate yourself above them and feel really good about your spiritual condition or you'll place yourself far beneath them feeling as though you just don't ever measure up. You will not 
Receive my grace, Peter, you, me, follow. What calling has he put on your life? Maybe you're in middle school today, and you're looking at the guy that sits three seats away from you in class, and and you want to be a great athlete, and you want to use it for God's glory and honor. You have dreams and visions of going one day and playing in the NBA, and this guy barely even practices, and you spend every waking day working as hard as you can to become the athlete that you want to be deep down inside. And yet this is the guy who has all the accolades. He runs circles around you in athleticism. Lord, I want to follow you. I want to do great things for your kingdom. Why did you give him all of that? What is that to you? If I want to pour out ability in him that far exceeds what you could ever imagine, what is that to you, son, you, me, follow? You're in your senior year. You've been taking all of the ATs. You've been preparing for college. You've been taking all that stuff that gets you prepared for the classes, and, and you simply cannot make whatever grade it is you need to make to get into your dream school. And yet she over here, who doesn't even pick up a book, is in her junior year. She's already been accepted by five colleges, of which Georgia's one. Could care less about school, and here you are as diligent as you You are using all of the abilities that God has given you, and you know school just doesn't come as easy to you. You look over here and say, God, I want to do this for your kingdom, though. I want to go into the medical field. I want to be a doctor that would bring you glory and honor over here. If I want to pour out all of the brains in her, what is that to you? You, me, follow. You're 30 and you're still single, and it hurts in a place um, that you can't even define. And you long to be married. You long to put on display who God is and how he operates. And you want a marriage that would so honor the Lord to be used by God and his kingdom for his purposes. And, and you find others over here. And you, there are 16 of your friends that have been married in the last two years. God, what is going on? And he would gently but firmly say, if I want to marry them all off and I want to call you to being single, what is that to you? You, me, follow. You don't have kids. You've been trying. You've gone the route of science and asked medicine to help you out. and It still hasn't happened for you. You've tried to go down the road of adoption. That child is still not coming to your home. You're still waiting. You have a longing inside of your heart, God, I want to bring children up in the fear and the admonition of you. I want to give them back to you in the same way Hannah did the scriptures. I want them to serve you, to walk with you faithfully. I want there to be godly offspring in our home. And this family over here has seven children. And Jesus would say, if I want to give them 20, what is that to you? You, me. Follow. Your children are rebellious, and they still are not where you long for them to be in life. You know that once they turn, they will strengthen the brothers. You know their testimony will be used by God in a powerful way, and you're waiting, and he is, he is tardy in your mind on coming and rescuing. 
And you see this other family who has four kids who have all gone into the mission field. What is that to you? You, me, follow. You're 65. And you wanted to retire next year, but you are looking at the finances and there's just no way. You do not have the capital to be able to do it. And yet, this little punk at 35 (laughs) who invented something in the technology world sold it to some company for a billion bucks and he can do whatever he wants to do with the rest of his life while you slave away. What is that to you? You. Me. Follow. I close with this. The only point of application. Embrace God's wisdom and ways by following Jesus. And the way I think that we follow Jesus is we do a couple of simple things. We, one, go to his word, and we begin to read his word on a regular and consistent basis. Take just a portion of your day and read the scriptures so that you can know who he is. And the more you know who he is, the more you will hear his voice. And he will lead you. Pray. Pray for a portion of every day. Say, God, I want to draw near to you, and I'm asking that you would draw near to me. I know you tell me that will happen in James. God, make it true. I've got to walk near you. Help me set my gaze upon you. And lastly, we follow him. We we embrace his wisdom and ways and follow him when we rest in his calling for us because this is what God does. We will fail at trying to become the person that we want to become. We will fail every single time at it. But when we rest in God's calling upon us, when we are faithful to obey what it is that we have in front of us, God, what he does is he does the work inside of us and he actually changes us into the image of his son and we become more and more and more like Jesus. We will fail trying to make it happen. God will succeed in making it happen. So rest in your calling. You won't walk out of here resting. You will have to beg God to help you rest and Jesus will help you rest. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again um, for your wisdom. You uh, know all things. You know exactly uh, what it is that we should be doing and that which it is that we should not be doing. And so, Lord, today I pray that you would pour some of that wisdom out on us. Help us to follow you, Jesus, to rest in you. Help us to celebrate what you do in your body through others. And help us to rest in you. We love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.